the mind to let go of rumination and blame, guilt, shame about the past, and anxiety for the future. And begin practices that are relevant to this retreat. It's that constant movement of mind, past, guilt, future, anxiety, or imagining possible disasters. It's exactly that movement that creates and perpetuates our suffering. It's also exactly that movement that blocks us from seeing the eternal truth, the eternal peace that underlies everything, the truth that can put an end to our suffering. I very much appreciate that all these people come together to temporarily put aside strategies which don't work. And to take on the work that does work. So I don't do sanzen on the first day. It adds too much kerfuffle. This was a beautiful word that Kogan Carlson used to use, kerfuffle. Both physical and mental kerfuffle have people getting up and down and bells ringing and people worried about what to ask or say in Sanzen. But after this talk, we will have a question and answer session over in the guest area offered by Kise, who's one of our senior monastics, who's assisting me with this session. So in particular, if you were new to our style of session, or you have specific practice-related questions, you're welcome to go to that session. And then tomorrow, I will begin Sanzen for everyone. And I've asked Kise to sit in on some of those Sanzen sessions. It's part of her training. Thus, if you are thinking of going to the Q&A session, you're helping yourself, and you're also helping Kisei to train in her chosen profession. So it's a bodhisattva act on your part. Also, if anyone is having difficulty with kinhin, because we have a fair number of people who are older than 60 in this retreat, just step out of the line, and you can stand in the back, And you step out of the line when you come to the back of the zendo as you're doing kinhin. And you can either just do standing meditation inside or outside in the hall until you hear the clappers. Or you can do slow walking meditation back there against the back wall. One of our missions is to help people to be able to practice for their entire life, no matter what condition our body discovers. 
And also tonight we'll be doing a new chant based on the five remembrances. So traditionally in this retreat, we, we chant the five remembrances every day. And we'll be doing that tonight. And I've asked our music master, Soten, to compose some simple music for those remembrances. And tonight he'll teach it to us. Some of our chants are musical, for those of you who are new might have noticed. And one of the advantages and disadvantages of music is it sticks in your mind. So when we do very simple chants with music or harmony, it touches the heart, not just the mind, but the heart-mind. And it goes in deeper somehow, and then stays with us and can be brought up in times of difficulty. So it can be a kind of rescue remedy uh, if it's in there. This session commemorates the Buddha's death. It's called the Parinirvana session. We have three major celebrations of the Buddha's existence. We celebrate his birth with Ohana Matsuri in the spring. We celebrate his enlightenment at age approximately 35 at Rohatsu session in December. And we celebrate his death at age 80 after 45 years of teaching in the Parinirvana session. His death is also called the Great Unbinding. The great unbinding, this applies to our death also. The time when the four elements could no longer be held together will happen to all of us when the forces of cause and effect that hold the four elements together become so weak that the four elements unbind. It was a time when the Buddha, it is said, voluntarily relinquished the life force that held his body together. This body, this marvelously complex construction. The more you know about it, the more you marvel at it. I had cataract surgery recently and while well, I was waiting in the little room while you're waiting for the doctor to come do the eye exam, I went over and looked at the chart of the eye on the wall. And of course, I went to medical school, but I wasn't an eye specialist. And the eye is incredibly complex. And it's just one organ in our body. So how, how did we develop this outgrowth of the brain? It's a direct outgrowth of the brain. And then how did it form a lens, a literal lens, to focus light on the back of the retina? And then how did it develop special cells to enable perception of light and dark and shapes, and eventually color? You may have seen the videos of people who put on these special glasses, like the chrome glasses, and see color for the first time, people who are colorblind. It's very, very moving to watch. So you see these tough-looking grown men in their 
wives or their kids bought them these glasses for their birthday, and they put them on, and they look at the sky, and they look at their children, who are usually carrying balloons and wearing colorful clothes. And for the first time, they see the color of the sky, or the color of their children's eyes. And they say, is in disbelief, they say, is this how you always see it? And they weep, and then everyone around them weeps. It's like when we catch a glimpse of true nature. We could ask the Buddha or the Dalai Lama or various Roshis, others who are ahead of us on the path, is this how you always see it? We catch glimpses, but if we saw it continually, the sparkling, flowing, luminous, undying nature of everything, would we weep? Would the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas also weep? Out of happiness that one person, one person has been freed from being blind, deaf, half-sentient, Free at last, free at long last, long last, how many lifetimes? The Buddha says that in his enlightenment, how many lifetimes? We celebrate the Buddha's death by coming together to practice as he did, long hours of meditation constantly renewing mindful awareness and unflinchingly investigating the great matter of life and death. It's called the great matter because if we don't solve it, if we don't see deeply into it, we will stumble through life confused and afraid, repeating difficult karmic actions moment after moment, year after year, lifetime after lifetime. We will stumble through life confused and afraid, afraid of death, flooded with anxiety when we hear about ways to die, earthquakes, fires, car accidents, mass shootings, trees suddenly falling in the rain. It's not a happy way to go through life, dying each day a thousand imagined deaths stumbling through life crippled by fear and crippled by the pervasive and milder form of fear, anxiety, anxiety, the killer of joy. I recently reviewed a book. People send me books to review and write a little blurb. And this one was full of reflections, um, kind of daily aphorisms, but one really caught my attention. I've been practicing it since then. And it was, with this outbreath, can you let go of one worry? It's great for catching worry that you don't even know you're doing. So you ask yourself the question, 
With this next out-breath, is there one worry I can let go of? And then you breathe it out. Very interesting. Killer of our joy, anxiety. So people ask, well, if I lose all fear, then what's going to happen to me? Of course we should be prudent. We don't step in front of speeding cars. We wear life jackets and canoes. We ask the night watch to check the stove and unplug the Christmas tree lights at night. But prudence and preparation are wholesome occupations. Occupations of body and mind, doing something. Stewing in anxiety and despair are not wholesome activities of body and mind. They can cripple the mind and also the body. So the Buddha taught to be afraid of death, but he didn't mean constantly anxious about death. He meant to be aware of death, the reality of death, in a wholesome way. When we're aware of the reality of death in a wholesome way, it gives energy to our practice and vitality to our life. I wonder if what we're really afraid of is to live. To live wholeheartedly. What do I mean by that? My root teacher, Maizumi Roshi, said over and over again, appreciate your life. Appreciate your life. Three words, but you could practice that for, the li- for your lifetime. And he meant appreciate your life with a small L and appreciate your life with a large L. Appreciate your individual life as a manifestation of great life. An old saying in Zen is, die before you die and you will never have to die again. So in the old days, we would exhort people, die on the cushion. But I say, truly live before you die, and you won't be afraid to die. So people also mistake that. What, what does it mean? People often say, I want to really live before I die. And what they mean is usually get drunk and you know, do a bunch of exciting things. experience intensity in their life. But in our practice, to really live means to do just what we've been doing since last night, to really investigate, what is this life? How do I know I'm alive? Sensing the life in our being, from the tips of our hairs down to the bottoms of our feet. Walking kin can sense the life in the bottom of your feet. Truly live before you die, and you won't be afraid of die, of dying. If you live life curious and interested in what's happening now and now, and how it morphs into what happens next and next, and you do that hour after hour, you won't be afraid of death. 
It will just be the next thing that happens. That's exactly why on this first day we are diving deeply into what it is to be alive. We have a traditional koan, who am I? But it implies a who, a person, a self. So what am I is better. But I think it works better to ask, what is alive? How do I know I am alive? Sitting still on the cushion, plunge into that investigation, first in your own body, then walking, then lying down. Open all the senses to the question, what is alive within me now? Close your eyes and do it now. How do I know that I am alive? We have a koan, Dogo's, I would not tell you. One day, Dogo, accompanied by his disciples, Zenhen, went to visit a family in which a funeral was to take place in order to express sympathy. Zenhen, the student, touched the coffin and said, tell me, please, alive or dead? Dogo said, I would not tell you. Zenhen said, why won't you tell me? Dogo said, no, I won't tell you. On their way home, Zengen said, Osho, please be kind enough to tell, you, tell me. You don't tell me, I will hit you. Dogo said, hit me if you like, but I'm not going to tell you. And Zengen hit Dogo. Alive or dead? Alive or dead? And ask yourself, right now, am I alive or half dead? The Buddha's death is called parinirvana, which means death without remainder. Nirvana, which he had gone through or experienced um, when he was 35, means quenching or blowing out like blowing out a candle flame and or uh, extinguishing a fire. So to think of our, the karma of our life as a fire. And the Buddha experienced nirvana at 35, but he had a remainder, he had a body that remained a vehicle for practice for the next 45 years. Nirvana also implies that there is no karmic remainder, nothing to be passed on to cause someone else suffering in the future. Isn't that the desire that all of us have, not to pass suffering on to someone else in the future? We're all concerned about the world problems that we are passing on to future generations, maybe to our own children and grandchildren pollution, climate instability, political instability, 
overt or hidden prejudice, oppression, human slavery. We all want to take care of a part of that problem, and it is very important that we pick a part of that problem and work on it in the world. We all want to take care of a part of that problem by recycling, by not using plastic, straws, or bags, by lowering our carbon footprint, by using renewable energy, by coming to know and making amends for the blindness of our prejudice. This is very wonderful. And we all need to take a part. If we don't, if we sit and complain about the condition of the world and we don't do something about it, that anger is not at the condition of the world, it's anger at ourselves for not doing anything about it. So it doesn't matter what you pick. But do something. But we also need to set aside time to undertake the most essential change, that which underlies all the other problems in the world, changing our mind stream. It is the human mind, my own mind, that creates all of these problems. Practice gives us the incredible ability not to pass on the abuse, the trauma, the violence, the prejudice that we have experienced or generations before us have handed down to us. Practice gives us the ability to look into the greedy mind, the angry mind, the jealous mind, the ignorant mind, all the states of heart-mind that lie both within us and behind the larger problems of the world. You can pick any, I did this as an exercise when I was a young student, kind of testing uh, the Buddha's teachings. And I looked at, at many problems in the world and were greed, anger, and ignorance, and mis, uh, a mistaken idea of self, and mistaken idea of impermanence were those behind every one of those problems. And I couldn't find a single problem in the world that wasn't caused by greed, anger, ignorance, particular ignorance of who we are. Because if we're ignorant of who we are, then we become greedy. So you can try that yourself sometime. Or if a problem emerges in your mind, occupies your mind, then ask, well, is this due? Is it true what the Buddha said? Is this problem due to the fundamentals? We practice in order to leave an inheritance of freedom, an inheritance of freedom, not just from climate change, but from the suffering caused by the ignorant, confused human mind. And because we are the only one that we can change, and because that's not easy, we work with our own mind.
And because we are truly interconnected with everyone and everything else, then very interesting changes start happening around us. But we can't count on them. We can only do our own work. The Buddha taught several things about death. And we'll be talking about some of them during this, during the talks, during this session. The first thing he taught was the inevitability of death. Second, the uncertainty of the time of death and that only insight into Dharma can help us at the time of death. So these sound trivial, the inevitability of death. And yet, we deny our own mortality. I remember when I was 30 and I sprained my ankle and didn't get better right away. And I was really indignant. How could this be happening to me? And still, all the changes that happened to my body, I'm kind of surprised. I just, watching old people walk upstairs, I always thought, well, they should just walk. Just walk upstairs. What's the matter? Now I know why they didn't walk upstairs. So a lovely practice we, <laughs> you could do is to just repeat the word death. So let's say it several times. Death, 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 death. Now I'd say dead, 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 dead. We seldom say the word. Have you noticed how people avoid saying the word? I remember when I was young and my mother taught at a high school. She came home one day. She was kind of indignant. She said they had announced over the intercom in the morning announcements. They said, we're very sad to announce that our beloved teacher, Mr. Miller, has left us and gone to a better place. And she said, like, did he move to another city or get a new job? Why don't they just say, Mr. Miller died. He's dead. It's inevitable. So to, to maintain an awareness of death, not in a morbid way, but in a way that impels us to practice, impels us to look deeper into what is life and what is death. Here's a news article about death. World death rate holding steady at 100%. Geneva, Switzerland, World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Sunday over the group's finding that despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate remains at 100%. Death, a metabolic affliction causing shutdown of all life functions, has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. Responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide, the condition has no cure. I was really hoping what with all those new radiology treatments, rescue helicopters, cardiovascular exercise machines, and what have you, that we might at least make a dent in it this year, WHO Director General Dr. Ernst Wessel said. 
Unfortunately, it would appear that the death rate remains constant as it has since the dawn of time. Many suggest that the high mortality rate represents a massive failure on the part of the planet's healthcare workers. The inability of doctors and scientists to address and confront this issue of death is nothing less than a scandal, concerned parent Marcia Grella said. Do you have any idea what a full-blown case of death looks like? I do, and believe me, it's not pretty. In prolonged cases, total decomposition of the corpse is the result. What about the children, Grella added? Everyone talks about death, U.S. Senator, fill in your senator's name, said, but nobody seems to be actually doing anything about it. I propose we stop mollycoddling death, not to mention the multi-billion dollar hospital, mortuary, funeral, and burial industries that reap huge profits from it. Under a new law proposed by the senator, all federal funds would be withheld from the medical industry until it, quote, gets serious and starts cracking down on death. Consumer rights advocate and staunch anti-death activist Ralph Nader agreed. Why should we continue to spend billions of dollars a year on a healthcare industry whose sole purpose is to prevent death, only to find that death still awaits us all? Nader asked in an impassioned address to several suburban Californians. That's called a 0% return on our investment, and it's not fair. It's time the paying customers stood up to the HMOs and the so-called medical health professionals and said, enough is enough. I'm paying through the nose here, and I don't ever want to die. So that's from The Onion. And it's funny because it's true. We only laugh at things that have an element of truth in them. Hmm? We don't want to die. And we do put a lot of research into avoiding death. And periodically, there's an announcement that maybe immortality is right around the corner, or at least living to 100 or 120. But in our practice, we look at it straight on. We don't argue against the inevitability of death. Here's a reading from the Terry Gotha, which are the collected poems and stories of the Buddha's nuns. And this is Ambapali. Ambapali was a beautiful courtesan. She was very wealthy, and she actually donated land to the Buddhist Sangha to have a place to practice. And even though she was very wealthy and you know, often described as covered in, in beautiful garments and jewels, and all, all men desired her. Somehow she knew that there was more to life. And so she became a disciple of the Buddha, and eventually she ordained. And this is part of her poem. Black was my hair, the color of bees, and curled at the tips. With age, it looked like coarse hemp. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. Fragrant, like a perfumed basket filled with flowers, my coiffure. With age, 
it smells musty like animal fur. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. Curved as if well drawn by an artist, my brows were once splendid. With age, they droop down in folds. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. Radiant, brilliant like jewels, my eyes elongated black, deep black. With age, they're no longer splendid. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. And she goes through all of her body. Like plantain buds in their color, my teeth were once splendid. With age, they're broken and yellowed. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. Like that of a cuckoo in a dense jungle, flitting through deep forest thickets, sweet was the tone of my voice. With age, it cracks here and there. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. Swelling, round, firm, and high, both my breasts were once splendid. In the drought of old age, they dangled down like empty old water bags. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. Like a sheet of gold, well burnished, my body was splendid. Now it's covered with wrinkles. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. As if they were stuffed with soft cotton, both my feet were once splendid. With age, they've shriveled and cracked. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. Such was this physical heap. Now, decrepit, the home of pains, many pains. A house with its plaster all fallen off. The truth of the truth speaker's words doesn't change. hold awareness of death in a wholesome way to encourage us to practice so that whenever it comes in our loved ones in ourself we can be present and investigate someone asked me in the death class that I teach downtown, well, well, what if I'm senile or what if I have dementia when I die and I won't be able to practice? And there are a couple of answers to that, one, one I'll give in another talk, but my answer to that person in the class was, well, then you become another person's practice. And you help them to become a bodhisattva. So I'd like to introduce another practice for you to try out. We'll be doing a number of practices related to death and dying in this session. So if you would um, close your eyes, adjust your posture if you need to. And wrap your body in a cocoon of awareness. Again, touching into the vitality, the life in that body.
and then bringing your awareness to your eyes. What are the sensations that tell you there are eyes? Perhaps movement, pressure, touch, coolness or warmth, dampness or dryness. What are the sensations in the upper part of the field of awareness that tell you there are eyes? And then we say, thank you, eyes, for, and leave a blank. And see if anything arises in that blank space. Thank you, eyes, for. Now moving awareness to your heart, your physical heart. However you become aware of it. Perhaps a little lower in the field of sensation we call my body. What are the sensations that tell you there is a heart? A beating heart. And then silently saying, thank you, hard for, and seeing if anything arises in that space. Thank you, hard for. Now moving your awareness to your feet. Perhaps at the bottom of the field of sensations that we call my body. Full awareness in the feet. How do we know there are feet? We cannot see them. How do we know they exist? And then thank you, Feed, for. And lastly, bringing your awareness to your mind. However you are aware,